Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the many people who have made this service possible. Uh, for the students who have shared scripture, for those who have shared music, uh, we recognize that it's an honor and a privilege to be able to come together, even though we are distant, and to be able to worship as a community. And so, Lord, at this moment in the service, as we come to your word, just for a few moments, we pray that your spirit that has been already with us will continue to guide us, will continue to shape our thoughts. Lord, I ask that you will still the racing of our minds. I pray that the uh, struggles of the week can be set aside so that we might hear you more clearly and become more like Jesus. This is our prayer in his name. Amen. So the story is told, and I'm not sure if it's a true story or not, but the story is told of a young man who was training to become a paratrooper. And during his training, he was told, uh, my friend, if you're going to be a paratrooper, you must pay attention to instructions which are given to you. Don't question them, just do them. And so the paratrooper listened and he was told, there are some things you're going to need to do. When you get on the plane, you need to jump when you are told to jump. When you jump, you need to count to 10 and then pull your parachute cord. If for some reason it doesn't work, pull the emergency cord. And when you get to the ground, there will be a truck waiting to take you back to base. So the young man listens and he gets ready for his first jump. He gets on the plane and they take off. And when they hit 10,000 feet, the young man is told to jump. And so he jumps and he counts to 10. One, two, three, four. Probably he's counting Mississippis, right? Six, Mississippi, seven, Mississippi, eight, Mississippi, nine, Mississippi, 10, Mississippi. He pulls the parachute cord, nothing happens. And so he pulls the emergency, nothing happens. And so this young man is hurtling through the air at 10,000 feet with both parachutes having failed after listening to the steps given to him. And then he mumbles under his breath, and there's probably not even going to be a truck when I get to the ground. Sometimes we uh, find ourselves in situations in life where everything that can go wrong seems to go wrong. Uh, where we have done the right thing, followed the guide, followed the instructions, and yet our life seems to be dizzy and out of control. And we thought that perhaps being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, although it wouldn't necessarily give us brownie points, but surely it would help us to avoid some of the vicissitudes of life, and yet we find ourselves in difficulties. And this morning we're going to talk about someone who found himself in that situation asking the question, life just doesn't seem fair. If you're joining us today for the first time, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Jeremiah called Running with Horses. And if this is the first time, the very first time you're joining us, you have chosen the perfect week because today the sermon is titled, The Race of Your Life, and really dovetails well with the sermon series. 
Jeremiah, the seventh century prophet, had served and serves under the leadership of five kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah's life was a counteraction to the truncated visions of those living around him, of those who did not recognize that God had a plan and a vision for their life. Jeremiah is an example of a well-developed human, a, a human living a mature and robust life of faith, living life to the hilt as he trusts in God. And in this memorable passage that you heard read for you today, Jeremiah is worn down by the multitude of challenges in his life. There is opposition all around Jeremiah. In every corner he looks, people are opposing him. At every turn, people are against him. In fact, when we read the story together, you'll find that there are some who want to kill Jeremiah because they did not like what Jeremiah had to say. And in the middle of all of this, can you imagine? God has called him. God has charged him. God has given him a word to say. Jeremiah is expecting God to stand up for him. But Jeremiah, in talking to God, uh, seems to find God silent. God seemed to be letting the bad guys get away with it. And so Jeremiah, not one to shy away from confrontation, Jeremiah comes to God and begins to air his complaints to God. Jeremiah uses language which is legal, as if Jeremiah is drawing up a lawsuit against God, as if Jeremiah is going to have his day in court. Jeremiah is upset that God seems to be letting the bad guys have their way. He wants to speak his peace with God. So I imagine that Jeremiah shuffles his paper, approaches the bench, asks for permission to speak, and then he begins to fire off a series of questions in his opening uh, statement about the place he finds himself in his life. Jeremiah chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Jeremiah says, You are righteous, Lord, when I bring my case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. And then listen to his questions. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? And Jeremiah continues after this opening salvo. Uh, and then he continues uh, in saying, why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why do all the faithless live at ease? This is the heart of, his, uh, this is the heart of Jeremiah's complaint in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. This is the heart of his complaint. God, why does it seem that those who deal treacherously are happy? God, why does it seem like you have planted them and they have taken root, that they are growing fruit when instead you should be dealing with them? Why do the wicked prosper? And although Jeremiah asked this question in the 7th century, it's not only an ancient question, it's also a modern cry. All of us have asked that same question. Now for Jeremiah, in asking this question, he was speaking out of a uh, rubric 
of received wisdom of the time, which held the theory of retribution. What is that, Andreas? The theory of retribution, you already know what the theory of retribution is. It's this, that if you're a righteous person, God would bless you. If you do good things, God gives you good things. If you do bad things, God gives you bad things. It's very straightforward. It's very cut and dry. And so Jeremiah is confused. He's baffled when all of a sudden it seems that the wicked, contrary to this law of retribution, are prospering while those who are doing the right thing, the good thing, are suffering. Jeremiah is asking questions similar to questions you may have asked perhaps in your life. Lord, why is it uh, that students uh, in my class who blatantly cheat when it's supposed to be a closed book exam are opening their book? Why is it that they still seem to do well? Why is it that they still seem to prosper when they are doing the wrong thing? Lord, why is it that my uncle, who never smoked a cigarette a day in his life, died of lung cancer, and the person who has a pack a day is doing just fine? Lord, why is it that I get stopped for going six miles over the speed limit, uh, but those who are in hot rods that tear down the freeway at 30 miles over the limit never get caught? Lord, you know that I pay my workers a good wage. I pay them on the books, not off the books. I'm properly insured. I pay my taxes, and yet my business doesn't seem to do as well as my competitor, who is paying under the books, not paying all of his taxes, and underpaying every one of his workers. Jeremiah is upset with God. Jeremiah goads God, and he wants to know why God is not doing what he wants. Let's read Jeremiah 2, excuse me, Jeremiah 12, 2 and 3. He says, you have planted them, talking about the wicked. You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. They are near in their mouth and far from their mind. So Jeremiah is telling God what he already knows. He says they're just acting. They may be speaking uh, as if they love you, God, with their mouth, but you know in their mind they're far from you. He's making a case. Verse 3, but you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me. You have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Jeremiah is really, really, really ticked off. He says, God, what you should not be doing is dealing with the wicked as if they are good. In fact, may I remind you, probably approaches the Ben and asks the, the judge if he can bring in an exhibit. And he says, God, here is my first exhibit I'd like to show you in this case I'm making against you for how you're letting the wicked prosper. Did you know, Jeremiah 11 verse 19 that their own words are how you should treat them. This law of reciprocity should be used because in Jeremiah 11 verse 19, this is what the wicked said about me. But I was like a, like a docile lamb. This is Jeremiah. I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. And I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit, 
Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. And so Jeremiah talks about the wicked as trees who are bearing fruit, asks God to slaughter them like sheep because he wants God to judge the wicked. And what does God do in this critical moment when Jeremiah asks an old age question, why do the wicked prosper? What does God say in response to Jeremiah's accusation of him? God speaks in Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 5, and this is what he says. He says, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, if you are worn out in this foot race with men, what makes you think you can race against horses? And if you can't keep your wits during times of calm, what's going to happen when troubles break loose like the Jordan in flood? What a response. Jeremiah is speaking to God making a case similar to Job, and God responds by completely ignoring him. God does not speak to the substance of his accusation. God instead tells Jeremiah, my friend, if you're tired running with men, have I got news for you? It's only going to get more difficult. And God says, you need to be ready to run with horses. Now, of course, we know this is impossible. Whether you're Usain Bolt, Shellyann Fraser, whether you're Tyreek Hill, it doesn't matter how fast you can run. No human being can pace a horse. They're faster, they're stronger, they have more endurance. So what is God really saying to Jeremiah here? What's his desire? Is his desire for Jeremiah to compete with horses? Because it sounds like it is, and if that's the case, God seems to be asking Jeremiah to do the impossible. And when you read the passage, it seems that in a sense, God is. God is, in a sense, asking Jeremiah to do the impossible. Jeremiah cannot run with horses unless he is going to be aided in some supernatural way. It's also interesting to note that depending on how we interpret the statement of God, that you need to be able to run with horses, that God perhaps for all of us in our own lives wants us to recognize that he is not a God who gives over exacting demands just to see us squirm and to see us fail. God does not ask us to do things simply so he can point at us and to laugh when we fall flat on our face. But God, I think, is trying to stretch Jeremiah. God is trying to tell Jeremiah, my friend, imagine for a moment, if you will, I know you're huffing and puffing and you're out of breath. You're worn out. You are um, so utterly done with what is happening in your life. But can you imagine Jeremiah? Just, just, just imagine. Imagine that you are on a wide open plain, that you are with a team of horses, that they are running and galloping at full speed and you are keeping up. And together you run 
to the horizon and you disappear over and you are not tired. Imagine how exhilarating life could be like that. And of course, for Jeremiah, and for me, for you, right? Something like that could only happen in our wildest dreams. And yet this was God's dream for Jeremiah and God's dream for you. God is telling Jeremiah that there is a process, but you will get there and you have to endure a little first before you can endure the greater. Now, if you've been following me so far, uh, I'm happy to hear that, but I'm sure there's some of you who are like, yeah, I think I get what you're saying. So let me see if this helps you. Um, and some of this is biography, and I will now have to change my biography on any, uh, uh, on any pictures which I send out, and probably on our own website, because it says something along the lines of Andreas Beckai is, you know, has been in the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, now in the inland Northwest, and has taken up snowboarding. Really, I did snowboarding for one season as a chaperone with an academy. I can barely get down, you know, grains. Don't really snowboard. So a few weeks ago, my wife said, listen, let's learn how to ski. Let's do something together as a family. So we decided to get uh, some, some lessons and to go up to Bluewood. And if you're in the Walla Walla area, you know precisely what I'm talking about. If you're an alumni, you know what I'm talking about. Bluewood Blue is just a very small, humble, uh, little um, uh, ski hill close to Walla Walla. So we went there with some friends. And uh, the friend, and I'm going to put friend in quotation marks, you'll see as this story develops, uh, took us there. And after I'd been on the bunny hill, my friend, who's a snowboarder, not a skier, said, listen, Andreas, Andreas, no, 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 forget the snowboard, forget the bunny hill. What you should do is come up with me to the top of the ski run. Then you're going to have much more room to try and practice turns and to figure stuff out. So I said, sure, let's do it. So we go up to the top. He assures me we're about to take a green run. I find out later it was not. It was a blue. Uh, and we go down this blue run, and, and there's a third person who is in tow with us. He is a young student from Rogers Adventist Academy, a young student who uh, knows how to get down and how to ski. And so the two of them, him on the snowboard, me on skis, the other young man on skis, we go down this hill. Well, he snowboards down, the other young man skis down, and I just tumble down. You know, it, just remember Home Alone. Every single scene in Home Alone where they're falling down steps, right, where they've been hit with things, that was me. That's how I looked. And the unfortunate thing is, um, Bluewood, because it's close to Walla Walla, there are lots of people from Walla Walla at Bluewood. And so the tumbling down the mountain did not happen unnoticed. And I'd see people on the chairlift sort of looking down and waving as I'm falling down, as I'm miserably going back up the mountain to, to put on another pair of skis which just fell out. And about 30 minutes later, we make it to the bottom. Thoroughly bruised and chastised, this young man goes back up the hill to do a run that does not involve waiting for me. But the next week, my wife says, we're going again. I said, what? She said, we're going, we're going again. So we go again and we have lessons. And when we go to have lessons, I don't know who my instructor will be, but once the lesson begins, he comes. And many of you in this community will know who this person is. He's a 40-year veteran ski instructor, a Frenchman with Alpine in his blood, and he's going to be my ski instructor. 
And so he comes and he starts talking about what we're going to do. He starts talking about turns like, and being parallel. And I'm thinking, Lord, have mercy. If I cannot snowplow, how in the world am I going to do parallel turns? If I can't run with the footmen, how am I going to run with the horses? But two hours of steady work, of, of telling me about my position, about my shins being on the front of my boots. All of you skiers are nodding right now, right? About the pressure on my foot, about the cinch in my waist, about having the pressure on the inside of my uh, foot and on my toe when I want to turn and how to keep the skis flat. All of these things started to add up. And by the end of that lesson, I could go down a green I didn't look great, but I could get down the green without tumbling. And then at the end of this lesson, he said to me, Andreas, listen, here's the thing about skiing. Uh, it's hard, and it might take some time getting used to, but when you learn how to ski properly, it's like buoyancy. It's like uh, an exhilarating experience. It's the closest thing you'll get to flying. And I said, wow. He goes, yes. It will feel like flying once you know how to ski properly. And I listened to this uh, uh, French ski instructor and I thought, this is incredible. And this is why I think God, in speaking to Jeremiah, seems to ignore his question about why the wicked don't prosper. God has spoken to Jeremiah before. God has given him the ability to understand why the wicked don't prosper. But when he asks the question again, God does not seem to respond. Because God's reply to Jeremiah was not to focus on the wicked, but it was to focus on Jeremiah's own situation. He said, forget about those people. Let me focus on you. And I think for most of us, when we're in moments of chaos and of suffering, when we're unsure of the future, we can often be focused on what is going on around us, asking, how can I get out of this painful situation? And sometimes the question that we should ask on top of that very important question, is not just how can I get out of it, but what can I get out of it? And God's reply to Jeremiah revealed three important truths. The first is this. The first thing that we learn uh, in God's response to Jeremiah is that the life of faith is not without effort. The life of faith is not without effort. Sometimes in trying to overcorrect uh, legalism within religion in which we say, if I do this, God will give me brownie points and I'll cash in those brownie points and be God's favorite child. Uh, we basically can give a false image that following God, being a disciple of Christ, requires no effort. My friends, it requires effort. It requires effort. There is no other way to put it. You put effort into everything else you do in your life, and it will take effort uh, in following Jesus and having a life of faith. Let me give you a quote which should help you to understand what I'm saying. Dallas Willard says this, the path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. And what Willard is saying is this, that you don't come to God 
with an attitude that God, I, I, I'm just going to supplicate myself before you because you know, if I don't do it, I, you, you'll never pay attention. No, God pays attention. God already loves us, but we must put forth effort in our relationship with him. What does that look like, Andreas? Okay, how about this? You're a student. You know, you, you try to come to the in-person service. It was 9.30. Who's got time for that? You slept. Now you're in your room. Maybe you're still under your covers. You're watching on your phone. It's been difficult for you to build patterns and rhythms in which your spiritual life can grow. And you think, you know what, Pastor Andreas, once I'm done with Walla Walla, because it's just so much, it's, it's just too much. Once I'm done, then I'll figure it out. Because I, I still want to have a relationship with God. Call your parents, ask them, hey, um, did you have more time when you started working or when you, were your, when you were a student? Because I guarantee that once you start working, you're going to have less time than when you're a student. When you work, and if you don't live in Walla Walla where everything's four minutes away, you're going to have to get in a car and drive 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes to get to work. If you start work at nine, that means you have to wake up at at least seven. Do you want to eat breakfast? You want to make a Starbucks run? Wake up at 6.30. When you finish work, then you have to sit in traffic if you're in a large city before you get back home at 6, 6.30. You're going to be tired. So if you want to live a life of vibrant faith, a life in which you hear the voice of God, a life in which you are not merely surviving but thriving, it takes effort to make a decision to wake up 10 minutes before you need to grab food in the calf and run to your first class. It takes effort to make a decision before you sleep to have the word of God as the last thing in your hand and not to be doom scrolling on Instagram. It takes effort. All done because you know that God loves you, God accepts you, and God regards you. And because you believe that, you want to make that effort to spend time with him as you would with a loved one. So that's the first thing we learn in this passage. The life of faith is not without effort. The second is this. The life of faith can become harder, not easier. Ooh, and this is true. We recognize that when you are baptized and you come out of the waters as a new uh, person in Christ, that it doesn't mean God looks into the future and scrubs out all difficulty in your life. It does not mean that everything will become hunky-dory, that you will have no issues in life once you follow Jesus. In fact, you often find in the Bible that people who follow Christ, people who are followers of his way, in fact, have more difficult lives, and the life of faith becomes harder and not easier. But here is the final one, and perhaps the most important, which brings these two points together. The life of faith gets better as we grow mature. It doesn't get easier, but it gets better. And you, and you understand this in your own lives, that there are certain things that you have to do which may be more difficult but they lead to a better life. It's this, it's my French ski instructor saying, you're not going to snowplow. You're going to learn how to be uh, parallel. You're not going to uh, take the easy road, but once you learn how to do it properly, you're going to feel like you're flying. 
You're going to be able to face down the mountain without fear. You're going to have the ability to maneuver in ways that are enthralling. Life will get better as you mature. It may not get easier, but it will get better as you grow and as you mature, as you start to trust in the leading of God. Jesus calls this uh, movement picking up your cross. The process of facing the justifiable fears you have in your life and then through him finding liberation from those fears and living in freedom. So, although the easy life can sometimes uh, seem like what we want, the easy life is ultimately only uh, gained by taking the hard path. Philip Brooks says that the purpose of life is the building of character through truth, and you don't build character by being a spectator. Or in the words of Eugene Peterson, uh, who says that Jeremiah provides fresh documentation on ways to live a radical life of faith, uh, each of us need to recognize that God is calling us to be stretched to be stretched from the places where we are comfortable, to be stretched from the places where we want to stay out of fear and for the sake of safety. It's like the author in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 3 says that we are called to run with endurance the race that God sets before us and to trust that he will be the author and the finisher of that race and of our faith. Czech philosopher and martyr uh, Vitislav Gadavsky says this um, about living life. He says that the terrible threat is that we might die earlier than we really do die before death has become a natural necessity. The real horror lies in just such a premature death, a death after which we go on living for many years. And I don't know about you, but I don't believe that God called me or called you to give up on life, even when there are justifiable fears and difficulties, and instead to simply live a life the shell of which he had in mind for us. And I know that there are some of you who are thinking, yeah, I I hear you, Andreas. Uh, I hear you. And Jeremiah, when he heard God, he responded to God. When he heard God's question, can you race with horses? Eugene Peterson says this of Jeremiah in his response. He says he weighed the options. He counted the cost. He tossed and turned in hesitation. The response when it came was not verbal, but biographical. His life became his answer. Our run with the horses. And Jeremiah, my friends, did not give this answer flippantly. He gave the answer understanding that God had called him, and he gave the answer after counting the cost. I'm sure that Jeremiah at times thought, God, at the beginning of my life, you you called me by name from this tiny little town, Anathoth. You called me from a place where there's only a grain silo, a gas station, and a church, and you gave me this incredible mission for my life, but now it feels like you've hung me out to dry. But when Jeremiah stops and he thinks, 
when he considers what God is calling him to, to run with horses, Jeremiah takes hold of God's charge and Jeremiah makes a decision to follow God. And I recognize that for some of you, you would say, you know what, this summer might have worked better in 2019. You, you do know what just happened in 2020, right? Pandemic, like life is terrible. <laughs> um, I don't need a message which is saying, well, you, are you tired with footman? You should run with horses. Like, that's not what I need. And I get it. In fact, just this week, we had uh, a, a, a service here at the Walla Walla University in which students came together to remember the anniversary of the shutdown. And during that service with poetry, with reading, with singing, with spoken word, there was a moment in which students had an opportunity to write on pieces of paper the names of people that they had lost. And our chaplain read out those names and we reflected and mourned together all that we have lost. And people named grandmothers, grandfathers, fathers, mothers, siblings, friends, teachers that they had lost. We know that it hasn't been an easy year. We know that life is difficult. And Jeremiah is thinking the same as his own life is being threatened. And yet, even in that moment, God does not want Jeremiah to be focused only on his present circumstances, but to lift his eyes up and to see the future that God wants for him. When you read the book of Jeremiah, it, it's not a happy, ever, a happy ever after ending. It's not a Disney story. Israel has the opportunity to repent, to come to God, and, and they choose not to, and God honors their decision. But in that moment, Jeremiah is called by God, and he's saying, Jeremiah, I have called you. He's saying, hey, Bob, Miriam, Susan, John, I have called you to live a life of purpose far beyond what you think yourself capable of, far beyond the promises that you find yourself unable to fulfill. I want you to live a life where you are not merely just surviving, but thriving. I want you to live a life where you don't just snow plow down the mountain of your life, but you learn how to parallel. You learn how to have this feeling of freedom when you are skiing, because God will be with you. And for each of us, whether you are dealing with layoff, with a marriage which is frayed and on the rocks, with difficulty in your school, God sees that situation, God is still in conversation with you, and God will enable you and give you the strength, not only to tarry with footmen, but by his grace and by his power to run with horses. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.